So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Doesn't matter. And so to rediscover your soul and connect what you do to souls. And I, 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 this is something I've actually done and I've found some people who appreciate it and some people who think it's dumb and morbid, but I'll set my goals for the year and then I'll go out to a cemetery and look at my goals again. And believe me, I, they change. I'm like, what, how do I want to be remembered? And so you don't want to climb the ladder of life and find out that you ended up on the wrong roof. So be introspective and Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got my friend, Brian Mavis. He's a great human being that I'm happy our charity Child Rescue Association gets to support. And I'm really excited for you guys to learn about America's Kids Belong. Brian, why don't we start with the elevator pitch? T- tell us what it is. Well, there are thousands of kids in our foster care system who, but there aren't enough families. And what we do is we, be- we believe that kids belong in families and not, they shouldn't be raised in institutions. And so we go out and try to get as many families and not just not just more families, but better families to care for these kids. And so that's what we do. Now, how we do it, I think, is unique and our secret sauce. Well, I'm going to plug this a few times, but everybody should immediately be going to americaskidsbelong.org and, and see some videos and see some of this stuff. Can you can we start off with how you hooked me and my family and our team at Child Rescue and talk about these videos that you guys are making? Yeah. So one of the things that people need to, I guess, with this elevator pitch realizes the kids in foster care fall into really two segments. And they most kids go into foster care and the initial goal is that there would be a temporary place and they'd be cared for until their biological family can become a safe place again, and the kids would then be reunited to that family. But for about a quarter of the kids, that goal gets changed when that it's failing and the biological family isn't it's a safe place for them to return. So they need to be, they need, they need a new forever family, a permanent family. And what happened, I just to tell it's kind of a little bit of a story here, is my wife and I started this work and we just believe that that people, it wasn't a problem that people didn't care. It's just, they weren't aware. They didn't know about these kids or they existed. And we felt like the best way for them to be known was to give them a chance to speak for themselves. So we started off with just photographing the kids and then writing some up their stories. But when we would go to these things where we would do this, 
these kids, we'd see kids like running towards each other who were siblings who hadn't seen each other for months, or they would come up to us and they'd say some things that were just heartbreaking or profound or funny. And Julie, my wife just said, if people could just see what I see and hear what I hear at these, in these events, it would, it would change everything. And so we got the permission uh, from child welfare to video the kids. And it was a game changer, especially for some of the older kids. And so kids older than 10 and set up, you know, that videoing kids isn't uh, terribly innovative and technology, our innovation wasn't technology. It was trust. It was getting child welfare to trust us with their kids and, and not just promote them, but protect them. So yeah, where you and I met first, Jess, was at one of these events where uh, we get to have the honor of videoing kids. And we've now done it in 12 states and we've videoed over well over 1,500 kids so far. So, you know, my my inner investor is is fascinated with the efficiencies and the percentages and the numbers. Can you talk about some of the generalized success rates of, you know, kids who have, you know, some of them have like less than 1% chance of getting adopted. Yet, once you guys make one of these videos, you know, the, you know, at 30 days at a year at two years, can you talk about some of that? Yeah. So the kids that we video, we, we don't select the state or county selects them for us. And they tend to be considered the hard to place kids. And I hate that moniker that's on them because the reason they're considered hard to place is because they're not really young. You know, they're older than five or 10. Another reason they might be hard to place is because they're a boy or they're an ethnic minority. And so it's all the things that are like, that shouldn't be held against you, you know, for growing yeah, it's up. It's not like a personality thing necessarily or something. <laughs> no, like you're, it's just yeah. a statistical so you're considered hard category. to place because yeah, you're 10 or something and or older, you know. And, and so when they, because of that, their, their likelihood of finding a adoptive family is extremely small. And again, I would say it, a lot of these kids that we have videoed have been in the system for many years and they've had no inquiries in the past few years. And so we'll video them and it changes everything. So like, I'm, I'm thinking of a boy right now who he was... 15, went into uh, foster care at eight. So he's, he had been available to, to, to be adopted for seven years, had no inquiries. At 15, we video him. And within a couple of weeks, he had 26 families inquiring about adopting him. 12 or 13 of those families had already done all the work to be an adoptive family. So it's that kind of thing that it, it, again, I don't even know how you measure the math on that because it's almost from zero uh, to multiple families. That's incredible. You know, with with our little ways that we've been trying to support you guys, you know, my wife has been one of the ones going down for some of the shoots here in Utah and doing yeah. some of those interviews. And she just comes home with like these amazing stories and she like falls in love with these kids. So I'm not surprised that stuff like that happens. I mean, some of those videos are just like, they're such tear jerkers. And you're like, somebody asks a kid that, you know, just looks like a teenager, probably as mouthy as my teenagers, right? <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> and they say like, you know, why do you want a family? And like, the answer is like, so touching your soul. And you're like, well, geez, well, I'll be your family. That's how you feel like video after video, you know? 
Yeah. Uh, and other, other times we talk about elevator pitches, you know, when people ask, what do you do? Uh, sometimes we say we make grown men cry. I believe it. I totally believe it. And, and so, and maybe you don't have these off the tip of your tongue or something, but aren't there like, isn't it like, you know, those 1500 kids, like there's huge percentages of those kids that start getting inquiries that weren't getting any inquiries. And like, this isn't like a one-off anecdotal story. Like this is like a happens all the time. Happens all the time. Yeah. So again, it's, it's a little hard to track because of just the way the child welfare system works. But the places where we've been able to get more information, it 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 appears that half the kids are getting placed into a home within six months of our doing a video. And again, so their their odds were well. Again, just looking at past their past few years before, they were they had no no inquiries. Now, let alone less than one percent to fifty percent. That's a, if we could just package that and call it a private equity fund, we'd make some money, my friend, because (laughs) that is an incredible rate of return. Yeah. I mean, and I'll tell you for for us from Child Rescue, you look at how many tens of thousands of dollars we have spent on programs and supporting aftercare facilities and, you know, Delta Force and FBI guys helping different cops with rescue missions and plane tickets to do all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, first off, from a financial standpoint, which is not the most important part here, from the financial standpoint, the like the little bit of prevention, you know, let's, I don't know if this number's right, but let's call it a thousand bucks to make a video and promote it, right? Versus the thousands for rescue missions, court cases, years, if not decades of PTSD counseling and this kind of stuff. I mean, that alone is what won us over so much. But then you take the human suffering problem of like, I mean, it makes me think about that Liam Neeson movie, Taken, where mm-hmm. his daughter's saying, what'd you do for the for the government, dad? And he says, I was a preventer. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, this is actually the closest to being Liam Neeson we can is prevent. Well, and, and I should back up. The FBI has publicly said that in their rescues, you know, the human trafficking, child trafficking cases, uh, approximately 60% or over 60% of the right. kids who are rescued from human trafficking have been through the foster system. Yes. So that's where I'm tying this together about yes. preventer. Yeah. So this, I tell people, you know, because we'll show these videos and, and literally, you know, grown men will cry because these kids are just saying things that are like, gosh, you know, I had no idea. My kid was asking for, you know, a phone or a car or a, and these kids are asking for a bed or a family. And so- <laughs> A dog, uh, the way those kids talk about having a pet, you're like, man. Yeah. So, so, and, but I'll, I'll tell people, it's like, this isn't just a heart issue. It's a smart issue and it is upstream. It's upstream and, you know, it's upstream to sex trafficking. It's also upstream to a bunch of other issues. So, you know, kids who are, are in foster care and then aren't connected to a family who age out are four, four times more likely uh, to attempt or commit suicide. You mentioned sex trafficking. They're the most vulnerable group for uh, that. They're half the kids that age out then are struggle with drug addiction early on in life. About half will, won't graduate from high school. A third will be living in poverty. About somewhere between 25 to 50% will experience homelessness about half the boys will spend some time in trouble with the law. Girls are three times more likely than their peers at 19 to be pregnant. And they're also then the most vulnerable group to losing their own children to the foster care system, starting the cycle all over again. So it's like, 
I think, you know, that's one of the things that compelled me to get into this issue was like, I mean, and I'm sincere, thank God for organizations and ministries that help with homelessness and addiction and mental health and poverty and all those things. But wouldn't it be smart if we could have a kid could have a family so that these kids wouldn't need any of those ministries or organizations 10 years from now? You know, it's it's not a pretty analogy, but our listeners, you know, we've had a lot of folks from the special operations community. They know about some of the guys we work with there at Child Rescues. And and one of the sayings you'll hear some of them say is you can you can have a quart of sweat in training or a gallon of blood on the field, mm. you know, mm. and <laughs> neither of those are pretty pictures, but I sure prefer one over the other. Yeah. And that, and you know, again, that's it's not pretty, but it's true. And and so in our case, when it comes to the what you're saying is the court of sweat, it's this issue too still can be romanticized. And they're like, oh, these, you know, sweet little kids. Well, these sweet little kids have lost a family and something horrible happened for that to happen. And so they do have a hurt in their life, some deep wounds. And, and those wounds often are from people that were meant to protect them. And so when we ask families to, to open up their hearts and homes to these kids, we're asking them to really be a healing family and, and to learn a special set of skills that most parents wouldn't have learning about trauma. And so that they can, they can try to do, do this well, because it, it's, it's not easy. And so I want to make sure that people are understanding that, yeah, these, this, it's smart. It's the right thing to do, but you are inviting a child into your life who's experienced some deep losses and wounds, and it's going to require some extraordinary skills and, and love on your part to help in healing them. You know, I think one of the most helpful things with getting more of a vision for that is I went to one of your events this year and you guys had had the license to show that new Mark uh, Wahlberg movie, The Instant mm-hmm. Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get to see like just how tough it is. And like, they don't really pull punches, uh, but you still get to see like the love and the optimism in the end too. And so I would highly endorse everybody go watch Instant Family. It's it's a really great movie. Yeah, it's uh, got laughs and tears. And my understanding is that producer or director of the movie, it's essentially his story. I mean, it's 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 based on a true, true story of somebody involved in the making of that film. So good. Well, you know, I think... You know, I've enjoyed getting to know you and, and your team, people like Todd Kinsley and Melissa. And I think one of the other things that really speaks to your character and your vision, the way you've done this is the kind of people that have have caught this vision that you and your wife have, mm-hmm. have shepherded along here. You know, one of the people I've got the most respect in the world for is my business partner, Lindsay Hadley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she started our charity 10 years ago. And the fact that she sings your praises all over the place all the time was a huge one. And, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to be at, at some different events with her and, and Joe Ritchie. And, you know, I, like I got to be part of this cool video where it was Joe and Hugh Jackman's wife, Deb Jackman, and the first lady of Kenya. And like, you know, Joe does, some, Joe does some big stuff. There's some, there's a great Fast Company article. If everybody wants to look up all the help he did in Rwanda after the genocide. And the fact that you attract and retain people like that, I think says a lot about your character and a lot about what you've created. So congrats on that. Well, thank you. And really a line that I kind of got from Joe Ritchie, that it's the, it's the thing that convinced me that I should team up with him is, is it's something to the effect of, 
who you choose to work with is the most important choice you'll ever make. And so we put, we're out all the time just looking for people of incredible character and believe if we get that right, then it makes everything else a lot easier and better. I love it. Well, so how long has it been now? That you guys have been doing this? You know, it's a little bit hard to measure because there was this blend of, of our personal life and professional life. We're not sure when one became the other, but we started off as becoming foster parents in 2005. So that was just over 15 years ago. And, and then a couple of years into that, we started getting some just personal challenges. So one thing that happened to me, I, I have a, my background was, I was a pastor and had a child welfare worker call and asked to meet with me. And so a couple of days later, this gal named Cindy came and she said, Brian, I really just came here to tell you one thing in the 26 year history of child welfare in our County. We have never had a day where kids weren't waiting for families to take care of them. And she said, help me change your weights. Help me recruit so many families that they're on the waiting list, not the kids. And so we, we leaned into that. We helped them fulfill that within a year. And then we helped some other counties. And then we had to start a nonprofit because my wife and I were running around, running out of our resources and then focusing on Colorado. And then it was about six years ago that we met Joe Ritchie. And he challenged us to go beyond Colorado, actually flew home. I mean, it, it was almost exactly six years ago today. Maybe it was six years ago yesterday. So today's it's the 15th of January for on this call. And we arrive home and my wife says, so are you going to do this? Are you going to you know, help lead this and have it be national? And I was like, no. She's like, why not? I said, because getting kids into family is your thing. It's not my thing. As a pastor, my thing was just pointing people to Jesus. So I had the opportunity to sleep on the couch that night and rethink my answer. <laughs> so I wake up to this text. It's sent to my wife and me. And it says, Brian is from this gal who had adopted a couple of kids. She goes, Brian, I had this dream last night. I dreamt that you died and I tried to get into your funeral, uh, but I couldn't get in because it was full of kids that you had gotten into families. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> A couple months later, it still took a couple more months. I finally got it and realized this was God's call in my life. So, so it's been, it's been about almost six years that we've led the national side of things. And we, what, what we've done now, if we've worked now in 12 States with the videos that you're, we've talked about, and we've implemented a full campaign in three States. And we'll be starting a couple more this year. And that includes working with the governor has a child welfare, the faith community, the business community, and essentially the creative storytellers. And we create a campaign to uh, change who waits. I love it. You know, six years, 1500 videos later, what are some of your biggest takeaways? One is there's a family for every kid. And there, there are, we have heard over and over, unfortunately, that like this kid is pretty much just nobody's going to want them because of ex some extraordinary maybe disabilities that are they're nonverbal just you know physical or mental challenges and there'll be there's remarkable families out there who are like we're up for that like we actually we had a biological child like that and we we know how to do this and so the, there are in a sense no unadoptable kids it's just finding the families that will, will say I think that child fits fits in our family. 
And so there are remarkable families out there who will see these kids and say, you know, we haven't, we have a place for you that everybody has this deep, deep, deep sense of belong, wanting to belong. And that's a reason that word is in our clunky name, America's kids belong. It's the best word we've got. And we want everyone to belong. Other lessons are, oh, go ahead. Well, it's funny, you know, we were talking beforehand about different episodes of this show that you've listened to. Yeah. And in the the Zimmerman episode where he talks about that book about the, the culture, like what are business lessons, even though the mafia and the gangbangers are do deplorable things we shouldn't emulate, what are what are some of the positive things from their cultures that we should steal steal, you know, for what the rest of what we do? And you were talking about this even in that community. They make gang gangs make people feel like they belong. And so everybody, we have that deep need in us to, to want to belong uh, to a group of people who say, you, you're with us, we love you. And so there's that. Other lessons are there, there are, the government is not, uh, a government's good at things, but one thing they're not good at is raising kids. And they, though these kids are under the government's jurisdiction and these aren't the government's kids. They're, they're the community's kids. And so we believe that the faith community is a great, great, great place for families. And, and, you know, typically the people of who identify as that faith is important to them are two and a half, three times more likely to adopt kids in foster care than the general public. We also believe the business community is a huge part of this and that people's vocation is part of the solution. So what I mean by that is that when you do open up, you become a foster family or an adoptive family, it's hard. And, and so these families sometimes can feel alone and not seen as well. So when the business community treats these families in a similar way that they might treat military families, like, hey, we know you've taken on an extra burden, I run a martial arts studio. You get free, free, you know, stuff, free martial arts training for your your kiddos. Or I own a pizza place, fifty percent off. Whatever, you know. There's a thousand different ideas, and we've seen whole business communities come around and 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 help uh, support these families. And so, there's something. Not everyone is called to foster or adopt, but everyone is called to care, and everyone can do something. So let, let's stop right there. If somebody listening to this owns a business, they want to find out if you're in their state and and what that might look like, how they could help or something like that. Uh, should they email you directly? Should they go to the americaskidsbelong.org website and fill something in? What's the best way here? I'll give them a couple options. One is go, go to our website and now it's going to be redone and we really are going to work on this, essentially this kind of funnel that puts you in the right place where you say, if you're interested in helping, here's what, you know, based upon your responses, here's the ideal place. So go to our website. It's going to get better, but you can go there. Another thing to check out, and this is kind of in, again, very new. It's in the beta phase and, and we're testing it out right now in just one state, but hope to expand it throughout the country. We've developed an app called Foster Friendly, and it's especially for businesses to say, I want to be a foster friendly business. And so you can put in um, your business and how you want to support families. And so that's, that's two ways. And then if, if you just want to email B Mavis, B M A V I S at am kids is my email address. I love it. 
Well, let's look at this from a different angle for uh, for a minute. Let's look at what you guys have done in a way that so many other nonprofits haven't, and that's worked on scale. Yes. You know, you look at you look at like what are lessons that entrepreneurs or business owners listening today that they can take away and go back to work on on their business on Monday, right? To me, and I know we've talked about it already, but I, but I feel like it bears repeating is there are so many great people who are working on this issue and have worked on this issue for, for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Who have not received the results you've got. And it's kind of like, you know, having caring enough isn't enough. We need to be smart. We need to, we need to continually pursue strategies that where we can get the most results for the least investment, whether that's volunteer hours investment, whether that's donor dollars investment, whatever that investment is, right? So, you know, with the world of YouTube and the, and the you know, unparalleled ability to create an emotional response that, that good video does, can you talk about lessons of scale that you've learned at your nonprofit that can apply to businesses? Well, one thing is, as a founder, I felt like one of my best abilities is I'm a, a good persuader and, and, and good at getting the governor's interest or a a senior pastor or a business person, but my gift wasn't in scaling. So I went to my board and said, hire somebody who will be the CEO and who's good at that. And so frankly, you know, it's weird when you talk about yourself as being humble, but it took humility to do that, to say, that's not my gift. So I'm going to step out of the way and let somebody else lead in that way. And I'll focus on what I'm good at. So sometimes it's that radical step saying, I need to find somebody else who can help us scale. You know, and I, I love Todd. I've got to know your CEO. I think he's a great human being. I think he chose well there. Hopefully we can get him on here as well. But I'm, I'm interested, This the kind of radical self-honesty or the deep self-awareness, you know, I think as a founder, both of a charity and a number of businesses and stuff, there's kind of this chance to feel special for being the guy that started it, you know? And like, you know, for me at our investment company, we're, we brought on a guy who quite frankly is drastically more experienced at real estate than me. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy on our team, he married my wife's college roommate from 20 years ago. And I taught him how to surf in Huntington beach, California, 17 years ago. And, and over that time, he's gone and worked at a big, you know, gone and worked at some large multi-billion dollar real estate funds. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I can either... I really felt like it's like I can either be focused on my image or on results, but probably not both. Yeah. You know? And, you know, maybe I should be more ashamed to admit this, but but sometimes that is a struggle of like, I kind of like feeling special, you of know? Course. Yeah. I, it, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm, I'm saying it's good. And often those good and hard are often the same, the same decision. And, you know, you, if you want to look at it in one sense of like, I could have been a medium level quarterback, but I'm a pretty good wide receiver and like, why not switch, you know? Okay. I'm not the quarterback but I still get to play a key role and I'm better at it. So that's one way to think about it. But again, I'll, I'll be honest. It's when you're not the guy, it, it, it does take, again, I, I feel weird even saying it because it sounds like I'm congratulating myself. It, it takes humility and it's, it's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. You want to see the mission succeed. And frankly, you tend to, I think, I, I'm hoping that this is true. You end up being happier. You know, it's hard to be happy pretending to be somebody you're not. 
Um, <laughs> you, that's the truth. <laughs> you know, uh, have you heard of this book by Gina Wickman, um, Mark Winters called Rocket Fuel? No, I don't know it. Every entrepreneur, visionary founder needs to read this book. It's amazing. Okay. okay? But the first chapter, you, by the just, way, have been the cause of me needing to adjust my book budget for all yeah. your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll own that. I'm happy. Everybody needs more books. But, you know, that book is really helpful because it like the first chapter makes you feel so happy that like you're one of the crazy idea people and you know how to land the big accounts or like in your case, you can actually get a governor of an entire state to sign on to what you what you're wanting to do. Right. Huh? And then the second chapter is like all the stuff you probably, if you're good at that, all the stuff you probably suck at. <laughs> and he says like, if you're the visionary, you're, you probably are limited because you don't have a good enough integrator, you know, president, chief operating officer, right. you know, maybe you're the chairman and they're the CEO, whatever those titles are. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny reading that book. It's like, oh yeah, why? I hate that stuff. And I suck at it. And I feel shame that I'm worse at that than like, I can land multi-million dollar clients, mm -hmm. but I'm like really likely to forget to send the invoice so that we get paid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I can, I can give keynote speeches to large crowds, but like, I, like I have to get a virtual assistant in the Philippines who English is a second language to check my spelling and grammar <laughs> when I write something. Do you know what I mean? And it just helps me own it harder. I've like, I don't know. I, there's, there's another one called Hunting in a Farmer's World. I've read, there's a number of great ADD books like Delivered from Distractedness by these two Harvard professors, mm. John Ratty, who's, who's also got a great book called Spark, but, and his, and his colleague. And they, he says that, they say that ADD should probably be uh, retitled not as a disorder, but the, it should just be called Entrepreneur Brain. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, but like, I don't know, it, it took me a while to want to be honest that like, I'm not that good a manager. Like I, I can show up and I can rally the troops and I can get the juices going, but like I procrastinate and I, and I don't really like follow up on people that well. And like shocker when they don't like forever, just do what they're supposed to when nobody's checking. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Right. And like, I don't know. Is you it, know this uh, Strength Finders book? This is all about yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. This whole idea of like Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing baseball. So why don't we all figure out what our basketball is and double down on that and yeah. hire a baseball player to do the baseball? You know? Yes. Yes. So well, I want to believe I'm good at lots of stuff and it takes and it's everything's better when I admit I'm not. Yeah. You got to get real with yourself. And 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 if, if there's a, a like if you need a trick to help your, your ego get there is just everybody's got to be, no matter where you are on the team, just call yourself, I'm the CEO of motivation. I'm the CEO of administration. I'm the CEO of spelling. I mean, just like be the boss of that thing. And, and just, I mean, if you need, if you need that, but yeah, if you're, if you're Michael Jordan at, if you, if you can be a Michael Jordan at something and you're playing baseball, let, set the bat down. You know, it's interesting too. the business media and the media in general loves to pick the one person claim like Bill Gates build Microsoft, not Bill Gates plus all those employees plus ever. Right. Right. It just it's too complicated of a story. But they also don't talk much about Paul Allen. Do you know what I mean? Right. They don't, you know, like we hear about Steve Jobs endlessly, but not Steve Wozniak. We hear right. we hear about Warren Buffett endlessly. And it's only been in the last five years that Charlie Munger has really gotten airplay like like he probably has deserved for the previous 60 years. You know, like 
classically over and over the most accomplished people that we hear about or that we look up to yeah they got a wingman they got they got somebody who's good at the stuff they're not they've got somebody who they can be so honest with to be a check on them they you know what i mean like that covers a different part of the spectrum than they covered i have a few i mean so i mean it, 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 uh, there, are, there are several co-founders one's my wife who who invented you know the the videos and the invention again was trust but Janet Kelly, who was the Secretary of State of, of Virginia, really helped pick up the governmental side. I mean, so she's she's the key person on that. We've got another person who's who oversees Tennessee, but has a child welfare background. Who and then Kristen Allender, who does that. I and mean, it's just it. I think like enjoy it being a team sport. Whatever you're working on, make it a team sport, and and give praise to those other people. Right? I think once you start doing it, you, you can come to enjoy it. You know, I think, I think some of my like insecurities of being a kid, like moving from a city of a million where like skateboarding, wearing neon was cool to moving to like a farm town where wearing plaid and playing football was cool. And I went from like being cool to like, just being one of like the faceless masses. Right. <laughs> like, I think I like, I had like deep seated issues about being like dismissed by the, by the, right. Because of it. And so like, I became like the best snowboarder our high school had ever known. I was the only kid who could do jump off 30 foot cliffs or the first kid to do switch 540s or black flips. And so I could feel good about myself or, you know, as an adult, I figured like, I'll become the richest guy anybody in my high school has ever heard of. And I'll show them, you know what I mean? Right. And it really is like this self-focused thing of like, I'm going to try and use other people's approval of me as a band-aid to cover up my insecurities and maybe my own unapproval of myself or something. Right. And I feel like, you know, that has the, all the negative influence. You know, I got so many negative results that anybody self-focused gets because of that and learned some painful lessons as a result, right? And, and yet it's not, it's not just being humility about caring other people, like embracing it as a sport of wanting their wins, you know, like, like caring about your team. This sounds, maybe it sounds dumb, but like almost like a parent, like I really want them to win. I want them to progress. Yes. I want their win. Yes. It's a different kind of enjoyment. Like making a lot of money in my twenties was like amazing. It was so cool. And then you're like, you know, I bought this fancy, I was like 24. I bought this really fancy car. And like three days later, I was like, that's it. Now <laughs> I was expecting fireworks and, and like, nobody cares. Like I'm looking around, nobody's noticing my car. <laughs> nobody cares about my car this is supposed to be better than this you know what i mean like two weeks later i sold the car and bought an investment because because <laughs> because it wasn't you know anyways and then like my work in child rescue became way more fun than making money like you know when we had like i remember when Lindsay hadley started child rescue for us she called me she'd been speaking at this university in utah and um, with these cops and she's like, I just had this thought at the end of the speech of like, she's like, it's kind of crazy. Cause like it was a bunch of college kids. It's not going to apply here. But I, I just said, Hey, by the way, if anybody listening knows of somebody who this is happening to, or you're being trafficked, like, please come talk to us after she's like, that's funny. Why did I say that? There's a room full of college kids. Like, mm -hmm. you know, obviously these are not like the homeless youth that aged out of foster system. Mm -hmm. Right. And sure enough, the hall empties out. Well, the girl comes up and she says, we, we started the organization maybe like six months early and, in some ways, trafficking was almost like hypothetical to us at that point. Like this is a good cause, but we didn't really have the human connection as much in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And she says, it's been happening to me since I was a kid. Family member rents me out after school and it's mm -hmm. still happening at college and I don't want to go home. And Lindsay's like, oh my gosh. And walks her over to this cop and she didn't have to go home that night. And Lindsay calls me and tells me a story and I like break down crying. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
And like, anyways, the kind of work that you do has ended like, is like more fun than making money. It ends up. Well, I want to maybe to all your listeners is to really, again, find your why. I know that's kind of a, you know, everybody knows that Simon Sinek and all that, but it's, you know, there's a definition of success or fail under, sorry, the definition of failure that says being successful at what doesn't matter. And so to rediscover your soul and connect what you do to souls. And I, 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 this is something I've actually done and I've found some people who appreciate it and some people think it's dumb and morbid, but I'll set my goals for the year and then I'll go out to a cemetery and look at my goals again. And believe me, I, they change. I'm like, what, how do I want to be remembered? And so you don't want to climb the ladder of life and find out that you ended up on the wrong roof. So be introspective and get back in touch with what matters in your life and lean into that. There might, your work might be part of the, part of the uh, solution to it, or you might quit. So, but at least, you know, don't, don't succeed at what doesn't matter. Now I'm always fascinated the truths that show up multiple times in multiple civilizations. And, and you just said one of them, you know, one of my favorite authors, Ryan Holiday, he's got this great book called The Obstacle is the Way, all about like mm-hmm. stoic wisdom applied yep. to modern day stories. And he's got that chapter at the end of the book about memento mori and how these stoic philosophers who were, they weren't just a philosopher, they were running a country, they were doing all sorts of things, not just sitting around thinking, right? right. They, they consistently have these things of like, remember you're mortal, which sounds so funny, you know, but, but talking about like how, you know, bringing it to the front of their mind, like this can all go away tomorrow. And, you know, treating every day like it was a life, which is an interesting concept to me. Like, yes. well, what if today was a whole life? Am I really going to watch this many YouTube videos today? If this was, <laughs> you know, and then there's this great book called Training the Samurai Mind. Oh, I don't that, know that. Uh, it was tra- it's a bunch of samurai writings from like the 1500s and 1600s that have been translated into English. And there's, like, I don't agree with, there's, there's a bunch of things I love about that culture, a bunch of things I don't disagree sure. with. You know, some of their fascinations with suicide and stuff like this, okay. But they're consistently talking about like, you know, how honor is more important than life and, and that samurai should contemplate their own death daily and imagine these different ways of dying as a way to make sure you're actually living. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's the brave heart thing. And all men die, but not all men truly live. It's and it's true. And so I, I'm surprised where this this our conversation is is taking us. But you know, if I can encourage people who are listening to this, stop for a moment, remember who, who loves you, and remember who you love, and tell them that today. You know, one of my business heroes is Warren Buffett, and our listeners get to hear about him endlessly because I'm always bringing him up in every conversation. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Yesterday, I was listening to The Tao of Warren Buffett by Mary Buffett. It's all these sayings with an explanation, right? Very mm-hmm. simple to read, easy to read, if you're not, even if you're not a finance guy. I'm listening with my 14-year-old, my nine-year-old, right? Oh, yeah. And and there's this great quote about from Warren Buffett of like, you know, the greatest investor in the history of the world, mm-hmm. you know, goes in and out of being the richest man in the world currently. And the way he classifies success is being loved by those you wish loved you. Yes. Yes. I mean, I can't beat that. I would say your greatest contribution in life may not be something you do, but someone you raise. So he he says, you know, I have a hard time thinking any wealthy person who isn't loved by the people they care about. feels too successful. Yeah. 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 Let, let, let love be your compass. It's funny how allergic 
we are to that word in the business world or like when you talk about like manly stuff, you know, right? And yet these like hardcore special ops guys from like the most oh. elite special ops units will will leave off conversations with me going, I love you, man. Yeah. <laughs> like this is like the full on, like yeah. the guys from the real team that the fake Jason Bourne is from. <laughs> the real guys. Yeah. The, you know, they love you. <laughs> and they'll tell it's you interesting. that. <laughs> but I think, I also think that they're home with their manhood, you know, and that it's not a big, it's not as much of an image thing because they have, you know, they kind of been hella Mac, a lot of them, you know? And yeah. And somehow they pass some image things, you know, yeah. not, nobody's a hundred percent, but love is a power. And it's, it's extremely, I mean, I think it's the most powerful force in the world. I mean, fear is close, but love is even more powerful. I feel like I've talked about more books on this episode than I have on in a long time. But today at lunch, today at lunch, I was listening to re-listening for like the fifth time to Bob Chapman's book, Everybody Matters. And he's the CEO of the Barry Waymiller companies. And he used to treat people like an asset that just gets moved here and there and, you know, layoffs if you need to and this kind of stuff. And he, he saw, he was in a break room one day, one of the companies he owns, and there people are laughing and joking and talking about the NBA Final Four, I think. And, and as the clock ticks down to eight and they've got to go do their work, the, the enthusiasm just dies. Like you think they're going to a funeral, right? And mm -hmm. he says like, why does life have to suck at work? Like, is this like, these people are spending more time with us than they are with their family. Don't we have some responsibility to make life better for them? And this book, Everybody Matters is incredible because it's all about like actually taking that responsibility of loving your staff and your team on and, and really caring about them. And he pairs it with like the Toyota production system, like lean, continuous improvement, operational yeah. excellence, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. And, but instead of eliminating waste, he phrases it as eliminating employee frustration so that we can reduce waste and only do the things our customers are caring about, right? So yeah. he goes on to like a 20-year track record of turning, turning companies around, buying another one, turning around, buying another one. He has a 23% compound annual growth rate. That's a, that's the same rate as Warren Buffett. He grows this business that his dad used to own from 2 million to over 2 billion in mm. revenue, okay? Yeah. And so like most of these business books, they're like, they're either like, oh, love and you need to care and your culture matters, but there's no math. There's no return on investment. There's nothing that like the CFO or the investors want to hear about in those books. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is just the most amazing book of like deeply connect with humans at a human level and don't shrink away from responsibility. You know, like it's not like Pollyanna, okay? Right. But the, it's like the hardcore financial benefits of treating humans like humans. Anyways, can't recommend the book enough. Oh, yeah, I said, yeah, my my book budget just keeps growing because of you and your podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> there's another one. But I appreciate you bringing that up because a lot of times, yeah, people can say, uh, this business podcast just took a, a weird left turn and talking about love. It's like, no, like you, there is real, if you do it right, if you treat people right, there's return on, on investment. I mean, I, it's re, you know, return on involvement. It's you get engaged people, you get happy people, happy people work better. Yeah. Well, listen, we, we've covered all sorts of topics here today. So with our last couple minutes, what, what do you want to end on? What's a soapbox thing? What's something we didn't cover? What's a question I didn't ask? I, I would, I would say I would, I would repeat something. I don't, I don't know if I want to bring up a new thing. It's, it's that who you choose to work with is the most important choice you make. And so be on the lookout for 
undervalued people, not just undervalued investments. Look, look for people uh, that you think, you know, there's, there's something about them that is good, I guess. I don't know how to say it exactly. Well, I'll, I'll end with a Joe Ritchie story. So Joe Ritchie, you know, he's, he's investigating what's working in this space of foster care and stuff. And he finds out about us. He sends somebody out who comes out a couple of times and they basically say, this is the, this, this is the people you need to meet. So we fly out. I don't have no idea who he is. We're meeting him. We've met all day and, and Joe's an, uh, a very interesting guy, but still like, I don't know why we're there. And so I asked one of his daughters, adult daughters, why are we here? And she says, oh, he's just checking to see if he likes you. And she goes, let me tell you a story. He got his employees to interview the um, CEOs of the top 3,000 largest companies in the United States. And he only interviewed them and asked about their character. He didn't. He wasn't checking about what industry they're in what their debts were or anything, just the character of the CEO. And he invested in the top 60 and it was an, a tremendously profitable investment. And so character counts. And so focus on, on that, including your own. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting because he's obviously investing with a lot more zeros than probably <laughs> anybody listening to this podcast, right? That's, That's a great... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's a great thing to leave with. I think thanks for that. Yeah. This has been fun. Care. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me. I really am honored, especially compared to the caliber of people that you interview, you know. So grateful. And I'm grateful because it's a chance for more people to know about this cause and care about these kids. Well, we're glad you're doing what you're doing and and that you let us be part of it. So thanks okay. for that.